so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. From confusion about sexuality to the devaluing of religious liberty, today's youth face major cultural challenges. Those of us who are farther along in life and in the faith need to be intentional about setting the next generation up to be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ and His gospel. At our national conference, John Stone Street addressed this topic in his talk, A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. We hope this message equips you to disciple the young people in your life. Several years ago, uh, my, uh, my wife was putting my oldest daughter to bed. I have three daughters and a son. Uh, actually, uh, three daughters uh, age 12, age 10, and age 8. And my daughters are like the persistent widow. You know that parable that Jesus told? Because they prayed for six years that God would give them a little brother, and we got one this year. Uh, so we also have a three-month-old in the house. Uh, it's, it's great to be the parent of, of four kiddos, although being, a, I think, the dad of a son is a lot easier than being the dad of daughters. If you've got a son, you just got to worry about one boy. If you've got daughters, you've got to worry about every boy in the world. And, um, and anyway, when my daughter, my oldest daughter, was like uh, three years old, I was traveling, and my wife was uh, putting her little sister to bed, and she was one at the time. And as they walked out of the room, Abigail, my oldest daughter, leaned in, looked at her little sister, and said, God will be with you tonight, Anna. God will be with you. And my wife was telling me about it later. She said, John, it was so sweet. Except then Abigail turned to me and said, Mommy, I told Anna that God would be with her, and the other God will be with me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no, I work for Chuck Colson, and my daughter is a polytheist. <laughs> this, is, this is a problem. My name's John Stone Street. I'm the president of the Colson Center and the author of a new book called A Practical Guide to Culture. We are all here because we want our children to know and love God. And that would be difficult enough if we were doing it in a vacuum. If we were just doing it kind of all things equal and, and there was nothing else to be considered, right? It would be hard enough. I mean, I, that was the first time I found out that my kids just don't repeat whatever I tell them about God. They actually think for themselves. No one told me this before this. They actually think for themselves. But it's not just that that complicates this discipleship journey that we take with our kids as we want them to know and to love God and to know and to love his truth is that we're doing it in a particular context. We're doing it in the context of a culture that's bringing in all kinds of pressure on them. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish. Now, why wouldn't you ask the fish? I asked a group of high schoolers that one time, and they were like, I don't know, because fish can't talk. I was like, no, that's not it. You don't ask the fish because fish don't know they're wet. And culture is to humans what fish is to water. It's just the environment in which we live and swim. And culture's most powerful aspect, the most powerful aspect of culture on our lives is just the fact that it just seems so 
normal. The world that we live in and, 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 and the things that we confront and face and just the everyday life of turning on screens and, and, and hearing radio reports or all kinds of different things. What it is is that the power of culture is just its power to make things seem normal. And when that culture takes a direction in which what seems normal ought not be normal. You know, Scripture says, woe to those who call right wrong and wrong right. What happens when we're talking about an entire culture that thinks right is wrong and wrong is right? And it's in that context with that sort of pressure then that we're trying to raise the next generation to know God and to love God and so on. Now, how do we start thinking about culture? That's why uh, my co-author, Brett Conklin, and I wrote the book, A Practical Guide to Culture, is to really answer that question. If you ask Brett, why did you jump into this project? He said, he would say that he has five reasons. I'll tell you that I have four reasons. His five reasons are his five kids. My four reasons are my four kids. I want them to know and love God in this time of increasing cultural pressure. But for Christians, whenever we talk about culture, we need to start at a different place. The first thing we need to understand when we look at our cultural moment is the proper context of our cultural moment. And the proper context of our cultural moment isn't the moment itself. It's the larger story in which the moment resides. And it's that story that we read in Scripture. In other words, we start our conversation about culture by beginning with a common assumption as Christians, and that is the most true thing about about our cultural moment is the most true thing about any cultural moment, and that is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. This is not just an item of personal belief. This is not just kind of a thing where I say, well, no, I believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The earliest Christians, this was like their first barbaric yelp of reality. No, no, no. It's not true if you believe it. It's true whether you believe it or not. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And what that means, especially, for example, for the Apostle Peter in his first epistle, it's fascinating to me that the book of joy was written by Paul from a prison. The book of hope was written by Peter at a time when culture was about to get crazy for a group of believers. And what Peter says is, because that is true, that Christ is risen from the dead, then for the Christian, then despair is not an option. In fact, as Chuck Colson often said, despair is a sin. Because the source of our hope is not that this Supreme Court decision or this election or this Miley Cyrus album goes our way. The source of our hope is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Several years ago, I wrote another book with a friend named Sean McDowell. Uh, We wrote a book in 2013 before the Obergefell decision uh, for same-sex marriage on the nation. And the book, the title of the book was Same-Sex Marriage. People say, well, why did you write a book on same-sex marriage? I'm like, well, you know, easy. I was hoping to make some more friends and thought that would be the best way. But I remember in researching for that book, I talked to a pastor who had been involved in the marriage amendment battle in his state on a political level, and it had failed. Well, actually, it had succeeded and got overturned by an activist judge. And, and he looked at me and he said with great despair, he said, John, it's over, we've lost. Christian, that is never true since Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and I take you to that sermon at Pentecost where Peter said that, that, that what's happened as he's looking back on the events of Holy Week and he's trying to explain it in the city where Jesus was crucified, he said that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So because Christ is risen, Christ is Lord. And he's not just Lord of those who believe. He's just flat out Lord with a capital L of all. Amen? 
And the third thing we can know to be true about our cultural moment is what Paul told the group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in Athens. In Acts chapter 17, he tells us an awful lot about God, but in the middle of that, and parent, I hope this is uncomfortable for you as it is for me. Paul says that God determines the exact times that people live and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So Christ is risen, Christ is Lord, and Christ has placed us in this moment. Don't you wish you would, that last part was maybe a little bit different? I mean, sometimes you look at the culture and you're like, well, wait a minute. Why couldn't you have called me back to the 50s? Or why couldn't you call me to another time in another place? Look, there were no good old days. And God intentionally placed you and me and our children in this cultural moment. And he wants us to understand it. Now, in the book, one of the things that we do is we look at two different aspects of culture. The one aspect of culture we look at, in fact, we kind of keep that water motif. If you want to know what water is, don't ask the fish. If you want to know what culture is, you've got to step out of the water and look at it. And, and we've all had that experience of being on a seashore on, 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 at the beach, at, you know, at the ocean, and getting hit by a rogue wave. And there's a lot of issues when we look at culture that feel like waves. Like, where did that come from, right? Addiction, uh, racism, pornography, sexual orientation, gender identity. And as parents, sometimes we just wake up and our kids are asking us, us questions that we had no plans for them to ask us. And we're completely ill-equipped to really address that. And we wanted to kind of give a briefing on each of those issues in the book. And so that's what we do. But there's another aspect of culture. And I want to spend the few minutes that I have left here talking about that aspect of culture. Have you ever been at the beach in the water and you look up and suddenly you're like 20 yards down from your towel and you're like, how did that happen? You didn't get hit by a wave. You didn't feel the wave. What happened? It's an undercurrent, right? It's something that's part of the water that you don't necessarily feel, but that completely shifts your experience in the water. The same things happened in our culture. In fact, we we talk about in the book four different cultural undercurrents that have taken place that have dramatically shifted Western culture and that really impact what it means to be a parent. The first one is this, a dramatic shift in our culture that's an undercurrent is just this, living in an age of overwhelming information. Different, uh, you know, different periods of history are named by historians and sociologists. We've all studied the Enlightenment or the Industrial Revolution or the Age of Exploration. Our age has been named already. It's called the Information Age. Why? Well, because our students on a daily basis encounter more information than any generation that's ever lived. There's more information in a single edition of the New York Times. I'm not saying it's true information, but more information in a single edition of the New York Times than someone who lived in the 1200s would have seen during their entire life. Now, what is the antidote to living in an age of information? When there's so many ideas floating around mind. Some of these ideas are true. Some of these ideas are false. Some of these ideas are legitimate. Some of them are illegitimate. Some are genuine. Some are counterfeit. So what do we need in order to navigate this culture? I think for a lot of us, we say, well, we need truth. Yes, we need truth. But if you just dump true information into a sea of information, what happens to it? It gets lost and drowned out. What Paul prayed for the church at Philippi is that their love would abound more and more in truth and in all discernment. Truth 
in our generation needs the partner of discernment in order to make its way around just too much information. We talk about how to do that in the cultivation and formation of a Christian worldview, that lens through which we can discern the information that's around us. The second undercurrent uh, that we have to address in our culture is what Sherry Turkle, the MIT psychologist, calls being alone together. All she means by that is we live in an age of unbelievable connectivity but unbelievable loneliness. Right. Everywhere we look, and I think it's kind of funny that I'm talking about this. Everywhere we look, there are glowing screens, right? Glowing rectangles. We live in an age where we have are always kind of connected to the Internet. But interestingly enough, what that means with our cell phones and Internet and television and media and so on, what that means is it slowly isolated us more and more into our own worlds. So the number one things that Sherry Turkle hears from this upcoming generation, again, she's not a believer as far as I know, she's a social scientist, is that teenagers will tell to her, I'd rather text than talk. I'd rather text than talk. I'd rather text than talk. Why? Because texting's safer, talking's too vulnerable. And yet the same generation is the one that says, I wish my parents would look me in the eye. Turkle talks about this, and I found that part fascinating because this is the generation that's never known an age where there weren't glowing rectangles all the way around them. They don't know that eye contact is missing from their life, and yet that's what they tell Sherry Turkle, I wish my parents would look me in the eye. And there used to be these built-in moments for this eye contact, like the school pickup. Now, homeschoolers, the school pickup is when the car... Sorry, it's a joke. It's a joke. But the school pickup, you know what it is? There was a built-in question. Hey, honey, how was your day? And Turkle says, now it's, hey, honey, how was your day? And so even though we're together, we're alone. Even at the dinner table, everyone's caught into their own worlds. If the antidote for too much information is discernment, the antidote for being alone together is relationship. The third undercurrent that shapes how we live is something that Senator Ben Sass will undoubtedly talk about tomorrow night. I thought it was pretty cool that the week his article in the Wall Street Journal came out was the week that our book came out, and one of the chapters in our book had the same title as that article, and that is Perpetual Adolescence. I grew up in the golden age of cinema, you know, the 80s, and um, when I was growing up, the knuckleheads in the movies were teenagers. Remember this? Ferris Bueller, Marty McFly... And then I went to college, and the knuckleheads went to college. It was Adam Sandler and Chris Farley, and they were in college. Have you noticed who the knuckleheads in the movies are these days? It's grown men, and now, recently, grown women married with children who want to act like teenagers forever. We live in a very different culture than the one pictured in the movie Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce, where you have two of the youngest parliamentarians parliamentarians in British history who every time they went out in public would put on gray hair. Because that was a culture that valued age, because age came with wisdom and knowledge. We're a culture in which knowledge has been and wisdom has been replaced by information. And we're a culture now that thinks staying young forever is good. Now, listen, this is a real problem. This is not just immaturity for high school students and junior hires. It's actually a lack of identity. Do you realize adolescence didn't exist as a stage of life until the 20th century? And every 
culture in the history of the world until yesterday, kids went from being kids to being adults. Now they go from being kids to being adolescents, but they're not leaving early enough. In fact, the actual, now how they define adolescence is not 13 to 18 anymore. Some social scientists will say, no, adolescence in our culture is 11 to 30. There's a word for this, Peter Pan syndrome, or my favorite, failure to launch. Listen, this is an unbelievable opportunity, by the way, for Christian parents. If your kids aren't trapped in the throes of perpetual adolescence, what an unbelievable opportunity they have to be leaders among their peers and to be an influence for the gospel. And finally, the fourth undercurrent to me is the most significant. In fact, when we talk about all the things that we're going to talk about tomorrow, I'll be on a panel tomorrow talking about issues of sexual identity, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. When we talk about uh, issues of race, all of those conversations come back to an undercurrent that's been swept out from under our feet in our culture. And it's, it's the undercurrent of the loss of identity. This is no small thing. Years ago, Rod Dreher, back, back in 2013, wrote an article in the American Conservative called Sex After Christianity. And his insight in that article I thought was so important, which he said, what we've seen in our culture is not fundamentally a moral slide. It's tempting to look at all these sexual issues and say, oh yeah, what was once considered morally wrong is now considered morally right. It's a moral issue. And certainly there has been a moral slide. But Rod's insight, which is extremely important, is that that moral slide is not the root of the problem. It's the fruit of the problem. What we've fundamentally seen is not just a moral slide, but an anthropological shift. We no longer have an understanding of what it means to be human. Now, I know there's no evidence of it at this point in my life, but at one time I was an athlete, and I um, wasn't that funny. Good heavens. I, I'm a basketball fan. I, a couple years ago, you might remember in the NBA, Jason Collins became the first male athlete of a major U.S. team sport to announce that he was a gay man. He did it in the pages of Sports Illustrated. You remember this story? I'm black, I'm gay, and I'm in the NBA. And in the middle of his article, not only did he make the announcement that he was gay, he also made the announcement that he was a Christian and that because he saw Jesus being primarily a God of love and tolerance, that there was no conflict between that behavior and his Christian faith. Well, now, of course, I imagine it took an awful lot of courage for him to make that admission in a sports world, but he was expecting a negative backlash. He didn't really get it. He got a lot of support, uh, not only from NBA legends, but actually the president of the United States called him and congratulated him. And what we heard over and over and over was what we hear when someone makes an announcement like this, and that is, finally, they no longer have to hide what? Who they are. They can just what? Be themselves. Later on that day on a sports show called Outside the Lines, Chris Broussard, the NBA analyst, who's also a believer, was being asked about this story. And he was being asked really legitimate questions. Does this mean Jason Collins won't be signed? Will more people come out of the closet in the NBA and so on? But then they asked Chris Broussard a very specific question. The question was, hey, Chris, you're a Christian too. What do you think not only about Jason Collins' announcement that he's gay, but that he's a Christian? Do you think that's okay, Chris? And all God's people said, awkward. I mean, how do you answer that question on national television? Well, Chris Broussard said, look, as a Christian, I think that God created sex to be in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, and anything outside of that would be a sin. How do you think that went over? 
Oh, man, they called him a hater and a bigot. They accused him of hating Jason Collins. Where, actually, if you look at his comment, he condemned the sexual behavior of the entire NBA. But anyway, he, that was really the comment. <laughs> what Chris Broussard was told was, you have to keep that view, what? To yourself. Now, you say, John, where are you going with all of this? The history of Western civilization is diverse. There's a lot of different ideological influences coming in from the, you know, the Greeks and the Romans and, and the you know, secularists from the Enlightenment, certainly the Christians and so on. But one of the commonalities of Western civ until yesterday was that what it means to be human is to be a metaphysical creature. Now, that's a big way of saying the sort of person that asks big questions about life in the world. Is there a God? Is there truth? Who sets the rules? How do I know? It doesn't mean everyone agreed on the answers. Of course they didn't. That's one of the things that made Western civilization so rich. But what it meant to be human was to be a sort of creature who wonders these big metaphysical questions, and our behavior is on the side. So to be human is to be metaphysical with our behavior on the side. Jason Collins makes an announcement about his behavior. He's told that's who he is. Chris Broussard is asked about his metaphysical observations. He's told you have to keep that to the side. Do you see the grand shift that has taken place? From the very moment our kids are born, they hear that the single most significant thing about their identity is their sexual inclinations and orientations. You say, John, what's the antidote to that? That view of the human person is small and shriveled. And compared to that, the gospel gives us something way bigger, doesn't it? That every single person is made in the image and in the likeness of God. And for the church for too long, that's been kind of a trivia thing. Like humans are made in the image of God. That has got to be one of the most significant aspects of our parenting. Not just helping people understand what to do, how to behave, and what to believe, and even who God is, but also what it means to be human. Because so many of those cultural issues rest on that question, what is a human being? There's a lot more to say. We cover a lot of it out there in the book. You can grab it at the bookstore. It's called A Practical Guide to Culture. Uh, and, and, and please know, as a parent, I'm rooting for you. It's a tough culture, isn't it? But what do we know to be true? Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. For more information on this topic, visit ERLC.com and join us next week as we hear from a hero in the faith, Johnny Erickson Tata.